out a little bit of a disclaimer. And the disclaimer is that um, I love preaching and I love God's word. And I think preaching is so important. Uh, But I do think preaching is dangerous uh, because what takes place is, especially for those of us that have grown up in the church and have become so familiar with Christianity, um, it's some of the most familiar things that we hear and agree with and would nod our heads. And we think that agreement is what God wants. And I think that he wants so much more than us just saying yes, right? Um, In the history of the world, uh, people didn't consider that you knew something until you actually did something, right? I had a professor at school that said, to know and not to do is not really to know at all. So as we sit here and as we... uh, Uh, try to move past the blowing sounds that we hear in the mic and read from God's word. All right, got you. Uh, I just really want us to be very mindful and pray that God would give us the grace, not just to hear God's word, but to do it. So if you would, uh, pray with me and we'll pray to that end. Uh, Father, we come to your word right now and we are grateful for the fact that you speak to us and you haven't left us here to be by ourselves, Lord. Um, There's so many questions that we have about you and just the way that the world works. There's so many things that are confusing, Father. There's so many excuses that we would use to keep us from obeying your word. And I pray that that wouldn't be the case. That as we hear what you say, that we would agree with you, Father. And it would change the way that we live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, I love being right. Um, I don't know how uh, many of you all are like that, but I just love the fact of being right. When somebody's wrong or where there's a room full of wrong, uh, I love being right. Uh, I'm not really sure when this started, uh, but I can remember the first instance where um, I actually exerted my rightness. And it was when I was in um, sixth grade or first grade, six years old uh, at Mission Glen elementary and we were in Miss uh, Miles class and, and, and it was show and tell. So my friend Fatima comes up and what she does is she shows a picture of a temple that a family went to go and worship at. Um, and me being a good Christian young man, I raised my hand and they called on me and they're like, yes, John. And I said, hey, uh, I just want us all to know that that's wrong. There's only one God, Jesus, the God of the Bible, and I was on a roll, and I'm like, hey, there's no such thing as Santa Claus either, and so it's just like, I'm, right, I'm, I'm right, and I felt like I really had to share. You may not have been his, uh, as bold or as brash as I was back then, but, but I think that you have the same thing inside of you, because you know as well as I do, just this plain truth, it's better to be right than to be wrong, right? Nobody wants to be wrong. Being wrong leads to disastrous consequences, and we can see it in all of life, but with us being in, in, in church, I want to talk primarily about the spiritual consequences of being wrong. We live in a world where everybody gives a lot of information about God and who he is and what he wants. But we also live in a world where there are a lot of people that are wrong, right? It's one thing to be wrong about the directions to take to get somewhere and to miss out and to end up at the wrong place. It's another thing to be wrong about who God is and what God wants because that has eternal consequences. It's important that when it comes to God and what he's like and what he values, that we're right. And so the gift and the curse is this book right here. This book is a gift because it has the answers. It tells us what God wants and what God's like. Here's the curse or the hard thing about this book. For any of y'all that have tried to read it, it can be confusing, right? All of this stuff here, it's hard to boil it all down. You can leave with more questions than 
answers. There's lots in this book that's confusing, right? From snakes that talk to a flood that wipes out the whole world to God making an entire world in a work week to donkeys that talk to water that turns into wine. All of these things, right? And then you go to books like Deuteronomy and Leviticus, and what you find out is there's all of these laws, right? There's all of these things that it says that you can't do, right? So you go and read some pretty strange stuff. Don't clip the ends of your beards. Thou shalt not steal. And then it even goes on and says, well, and you shouldn't steal people. And then it goes on and it talks about all of these things that God loves. And we find ourselves saying, all right, God loves all of these things. But what's the most important thing? What does he value above all else? Especially in a day and a time that we're in right now where we're getting ready to go through the elections. And what you'll have is one side that that says God loves to protect the unborn. And that's true. But then you have one side that says God has a heart to protect those that are oppressed and find themselves in circumstances and scenarios due to the people that have power that oppress them that make it hard and less than ideal for them to bring kids here and into the world. And so you have both of these sides and people are saying God values both of them and they're saying that he values one more and It's confusing. So the question is, with all of these questions that we have about God, how do we know what God really values? Because in order to be right with God, and not just right about God, we have to know what God values. What do we do with these questions that we have about God when it seems like God is so confusing? If you would turn with me to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to spend time and work through this and just really try to see God's heart. And what we're, we're going to see here is a man that comes to Jesus and asks the same question that we would. We see an interesting response from Christ. And then we see that the story just ends very weirdly. I'm going to read the whole thing and we're going to start um, from the top. So verse 28 starts off and it says this. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, or Jesus, answered all things well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any other question. Where do we start? This is not the main point of the text, but I think it is a point that we all need to hear. And the very first thing is, for those of us that have questions about God, the best thing that you can do is bring your questions about God to Jesus. Bring your questions about God to Jesus. Here's a little bit of context of what takes place. Jesus is in the last week of his life. He's getting ready to go and to be murdered for all of our sins. Right? He's going to be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. What took place was back in this day, the sacrificial system was one where if you brought this lamb to sacrifice, this lamb had to be spotless and perfect. So you would bring it to the temple and the religious leaders would check it out and make sure it was flawless. 
Well, so Christ comes in, and what takes place is all of these religious leaders are starting to take shots at him. They're asking him all these questions to try to trap him up and to show the rest of the folks there that Jesus has faults. He really doesn't know who this God is. The problem is every time they ask him a question, they try to back him in these lose-loses, and every time they ask him a question, he answers flawlessly. So they're trying to discount him, and he's proving I'm more perfect than you thought that I was showing that he's going to be the perfect land that takes away the sins of the world. And so what takes place is folks come to him in droves. And then in this story, we see that there's not this big gang of folks that come to him, but there's this one scribe. And one thing that you need to know about scribes, scribes were guys who were experts in interpreting God's law. If you wanted to know something about God, you would go and talk to a scribe because these guys not only studied God's word, but they sat down and they copied and they wrote it out. So if anybody knows what God wants, it's this guy. And so what this guy does, after he sees that Christ answered all of these questions, he comes to him. And he says, what do you think is the most important commandment of all? He asks Jesus this question, trying to get to the heart of what it is that God values. Scholars go back and forth is, well, did he do this with the right motives or with the wrong one? And wherever you land on that is not the most important thing here as we'll get to the end. What takes place is there is somebody that comes, has a legitimate question about what God is like, and he brings it to Jesus, and Jesus answers his question, and even at the end commends this guy because uh, he uh, uh, answered wisely. And so what I want to say, and I just want to share this really, really quick, is one of the things that I found out is that most people that reject Christianity, they have no clue what Christianity is. Not all, but most people, when they reject Christianity, they reject some distortion of this truth. They reject some picture that they've seen that's not what the Bible is trying to get at. So if you're here and you're a non-Christian, you're a non-Christian and you have questions about God and what he's like and what he wants from us, bring those questions to Jesus, but more practically, bring those questions to somebody that actually knows their Bible that can tell you what Christ says. Don't find somebody that you can intellectually beat up on. Don't find somebody that's just going to confirm all the things that you're already frustrated with. Bring your questions to somebody that you've sat and observed and seen. They answered wisely. Bring your questions to Jesus. And for those of us here that are Christians, know your Bible so that you can spend your time unpacking who God is. Charles Spurgeon lived at a time where people were trying to, to defend the gospel and the Christian faith and all of this stuff. And what he said was, you know, I don't spend my time trying to defend Jesus. Because to me, that's like somebody trying to defend a lion. He's like, the best that I can do is expound Christ, to talk about who Christ is and what he's done, because that would be like me letting the lion out of the cage. And if I let the lion out of the cage, I don't have to fight for him. He's going to answer all things well. And I just want you to know that God is wise and God is willing. God has answers and he's always attentive to our questions. As you Look at the end of the story, verse 34. It ends off and it says this. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. 
Jesus didn't run out of answers. His opponents ran out of questions. And I want you to know that we serve a God that is wise and willing. Bring your questions to Jesus. I had a pastor back in Denton, and what he told me was, John, you want to know your Bible so well that you think God's thoughts after him. That whenever you hear a question, the first thing that you think of is what God has said in his word. You unleash the cage, and I promise you, Jesus will defend himself. If you have any questions, we would love to sit and to talk to you more. That's part of what we're here for. So this guy brings his questions to Jesus, and the beautiful thing is that Christ comes, and he answers. Verse 29, right? So this guy says, what's the most important commandment? Or as we look at all of these rules, right, what the scribes did is they had this list of six hundred and thirteen laws three hundred and sixty five of those laws were things that we should not do two hundred and forty eight were things that we should do and they're saying out of all of these laws and out of all of what God said what's your favorite one or what's the most important one what's the one that kind of hangs up above all what does God really value what's his heart what's the one thing And Jesus starts off and he says this. The most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're going to stop right there. This guy asked them, what's the most important thing that God has called us to do? And Jesus starts off and he gives an introduction. Is Jesus the kind of guy that when you ask him, uh, question, you already know that he's going to be long-winded, right? So you have, have, have to say, all right, hey, in less than a minute, how was your day, right? We all have those friends that you ask and they just go on and on and talk like that. My brother, he was like that. I mean, you ask him one thing and he just go on and on and on. Is this what Christ does? No, because Jesus doesn't waste any words, none at all. So hear this. He starts off and says, it's the most important is here, O Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Do you want to know what God values? Jesus unpacks, and what he says right here is this. God values relationships over religious rules. God values not just relationship, but relationships over religious rules. Let me unpack that. He starts off with this quote from Deuteronomy 6.4. This was the thing that God gave to the nation of Israel at the front end of this whole book that's filled with the law. And he starts off and says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The very first thing that we see here is this. God values relationships over religious rule because in his mind, Relationship precedes the rules. God starts with the relationship and then he gives the rules. He starts with the character of God before he gets to the commands that God gives because if you don't get what God is like or what God wants, you're going to misinterpret the things that he's called us to do. Relationship with God does not start with how well you keep the rules that God gives. When God saved the children of Israel out of bondage, He didn't give them the Ten Commandments first and say, if you keep these, then I'll be the Lord your God. He delivered them and gave them salvation and said, I am the Lord your God. I brought you into relationship, therefore keep these. 
So what rules do, what the commands do, is they don't start the relationship that we're in. They just shape it. If, if your ability to keep the rules defines the relationship you have with somebody, you are an employee, you're not family. As an employee, if you don't keep the rules, you get fired. Raise your hand in here if you have kids. Raise your hand if your kids keep all of the rules. Your kids definitely don't keep all the rules. (laughs) But they're good kids, and we love them. We pray for Josiah and Elisha. Listen, raise your hand if your kids are scared that if they break a rule, you're going to ship them off to an orphanage. Listen, if they were scared of that truth, you would probably have kids that were a little more obedient. But what you wouldn't have is a relationship. You wouldn't have love. You would have fear. You would have a dictatorship. There's some um, um, of y'all that feel like, "Ah, (laughs) I'll take a dictatorship with my kid. (laughs) That's not the pattern that God lays out at all. That's not the security that God wants to grant. That's not what you should do with your kids. It's definitely not what you should do with your spouse. Never put yourself in a relationship where the people feel as if, if I don't keep these rules flawlessly, they're not going to love me. That's not the model that God lays out. And that just sets us up for a destructive, destructive relationship. And so what God, or what Christ does here, is he helps us see relationships precede rules. Because all of the rules are going to be about relationships. Look here at the first command that he gives. He says this, And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. What's unique about that is that the first command that's given isn't just a command of the will. It's a command of the affections. It's not just him saying, and you shall obey. You should just do. You should work hard. You should just lie down and submit. It's not that at all. So many of us tend to think of Christianity with all the excitement that we think of our uh, moms or our spouses telling us to eat all our vegetables. I'll do it. I'll stump I'm get. I'll get all of this down. I'll do what you've called me to do. And now that it's done, we look up and think that they're happy and they're joyful. I did what you called me to do. Christianity, we think of it the same way. All right, God's called me to do all of this stuff. I really don't want to do it, but I'm just going to grit my teeth. I'm just going to bear it. I'm just going to give God what he wants. And I want you to know, based on this command, that's not what God wants. God doesn't just want your reluctant submission. That's not what he wants at all. He wants your willing and joyful affection. He wants you to see His Lordship, see the fact that He saved us, and He wants you to love it. It's the difference between a recital and a concert. For those of you all that don't know me, um, from 6th grade to 8th grade, I played the trumpet um, in my band. And I was pretty good as well. And one thing that we did was we had these things called recitals. And so what would take place is it was this painful time where all of us who tried to learn how to play, we would play music. You know, when our moms would all come and they'd be like all on the front row, just happy. Um, 
But then what would take place is the moms would bring their kids. So I would see like my brothers and sisters sitting back there in, in the back row. And as you're playing, you can just look them in the eyes and see they're thinking of a million ways that they could kill themselves because they would rather be dead than to have to sit through us trying to play the theme from Star Wars for the fourth time. <laughs> but what takes place is this. Music was played. People were there. And at the end, Folks stood up and clapped. My mom, because she was proud. My uh, siblings, because they were glad that they were getting ready to leave. <laughs> That's not what God wants. Friday, my, um, my wife and her um, mom, we all went to a concert of this amazing singer. And what took place was we we all came into this room, and it was a packed house. But it was a packed house of people that actually wanted to be there. And when she was sitting on stage singing, it was phenomenal. And when she got done, everybody stood up, and they applauded because they were in the presence of greatness, and they were in the presence of something excellent. And when she went off stage, people were sad. Then she came back out for an encore, and people stood up and cheered and applauded. If we would have came out for an encore, <laughs> people would, would have been frustrated. And Listen, the beautiful thing about the God of the Bible is that knowing what he's like and getting a chance to see him it's like being at a concert. It's not a, a recital. It's us actually being in the presence of greatness in a God where there, with a God where there is no flaws. We're commanded to love Him and to extend to Him our affections. And it's a good thing. It's a good command that's not a duty. It's a delight. It's only a duty for those that don't know Him. It's only a duty for those that would get a ticket to the concert and all they think in their head is, ah, I've been to a room where music is played and it wasn't good, I don't want to go. What he's saying is, it's different. This is a command of the affections. Why does God do it? Is God the ugly duckling that can't get a date to the prom? And the only way that he can get folks to really love him is by saving them and, and then saying, you have to love me. I don't think that that's the case at all. I think God commanding us to love him is one of the most gracious and best things that he can do for us because you and I, tend to love a lot of things that are bad for us. That's all that we tend to love, right? Think of a habit that you have that you know is destructive, that you know if found out it would ruin your life. And you may not be there now, but you have been there at one point where even though you know how destructive it is, there's something in your heart that continually goes towards that and loves that. As if there were no other options here in the world. And what God so graciously tells us is that there is another option and it's so much better. And he commands us to love him so that you and I would take our eyes off of ourselves and put it on to him. He has to command us to love him because we're so broken that left up to ourselves, we would never choose to look at him, much less love him. This is the great command that God gives, and this is the filter through which we see all the rest of the things, right? So the Lord our God, the Lord is one. God gives us his character before he gives us commands. God gives us a command of the 
affections. And it seems so hard because who controls what they love? It's not just something that I can uh, muster up and say, love this. But then he takes it a step further and he says, all right, it's not just that you have to give God your affections, but he's commanded you to give you or to give him all of them. Yeah, a preacher once said, God is never satisfied with anything less than our whole lives for the whole duration of all our lives. God is calling for all of our lives, our heart, the control center of our life, our soul, our emotions, our mind, our intellect, our strength, our fervor. God's saying all of that needs to revolve around me with no reservations at all. It's one thing if he just asked for some of that. Because on a very, very good day, beautiful weather, God gives me all the stuff that I want. I'm full of all of this life. It's easy to give all my stuff and all of my thoughts back to God. But what takes place when you find yourself depressed, zapped of all of the strength that you have? The crazy thing about God saying all is that it has nothing to do with the amount of strength that you have. And it gets harder with the less strength that you have. Right? Because you can wake up and just feel tired and exhausted and feel as if there's all of these things that I have to do today and I only have this much strength. If I give this much strength, the rest of the strength that I have to God, I won't be able to get things done. And now it feels like a burden and a chore. It's one thing for God to ask us to love him with what we can't control. It's another thing for him to ask us to love him with all that we have, regardless of how much that we have. I hope that you feel somewhat of the impossibility of all of this. Though it's good for us, it's very, very hard. It seems like a duty instead of a delight. And part of the reason why it seems like a duty is because we just don't know this God very well. Listen, love increases with knowledge to an extent. Uh, my wife and I got married eight and a half years ago. When we were first dating, she was into me, y'all. She was so into me. All right, you know, I could do no wrong. And the more and more that she learned of me, the more impressed that she was. And then we got married, and she, uh, and she started to learn. <laughs> Listen, she started to learn more of me, and she started to find out that I'm the type of guy that loathes making the, the bed. That I feel like making the bed when you get out of it is like tying your shoes when you take them off. There's no point. I'm just going to get back in. She found out that I'm the type of guy that regardless of how much hard work she puts into keeping the house clean, I just mess things up. She found out the more that she learned of me, she found out that the picture that she had in her head was not the right one. I was actually a much worse person than she thought. <laughs> Here's the beauty with God. Increase knowledge of him. The more that you learn of him, you're never going to find anything that's wrong with him. As much as you try to sit and to search, there may be things that seem uncomfortable at the present time. But in hindsight, you look back and you see, God, how wise you were to orchestrate such pain in my life to choose things that I would never do. But in hindsight, God, you really do all things well. You can spend the rest of your life trying to plumb the depths, trying to find something wrong with him, and you're never going to find it. 
This is why we constantly share and push for you to read God's Word and to know God's Word. Because if you don't presently see how it works out in your whole life, the beauty is there's stories. There are people. There are canvases where we can see how God works in the duration of somebody's life where we can come to the conclusion that this great God does all things well. And he's not a one-hit wonder, so it's not like he's just going to do it for them, but for those of us that put our faith in Christ, all things work together for good for those that love God and are called according to his purpose. If we know that, if we really knew it and really believed it to be true, being commanded to give him our all wouldn't be a duty. It would be a delight. I used to envy my friends um, in school who had their tonsils removed. Um, First of all, just by a show of hands, and I have to do this. How many of y'all have had your tonsils removed? I don't mean this to be a race thing, but it's just like I suspect. All of my friends who are white that that had their tonsils out. (laughs) Not that it's a bad thing, but I don't know why black people don't have their tonsils. Just, nah, you just got to swallow harder. Just keep moving. Well, what took place? I'm sorry if I offended anybody by that. That's outside of this. Back to the point. When they had them removed, what took place was I envied them. I said, you're so lucky. Because they would come to school and they would say, yeah, my doctor told me that I have to eat ice cream. (laughs) So all I've been eating is ice cream. And I'm like, you're so lucky. My doctor tells me that I got to eat all this green stuff. (laughs) I envied them. What they were being called to was a delightful thing. And for those of us that know this God, to be called to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, with no plan B, with no uh, reservations. It's a delightful thing for those that know him. The only times that we feel like it's a duty is because we really don't know how great this God is. And we think there's some flaw in him. But I want you to know there's not. There's no flaws. We move right on. Verse 20 or 31 says this. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We only asked you for one, right? You can't be that guy where we ask you, what's your favorite uh, movie of all time? Well, it's a tie in between. Jesus, you can't do that. We asked you for one. Jesus treats these as one. He links these two. There's a combination that can't be pulled out. They're not the same thing. Our love for God flows into our love for people. But God has always intended that a love for him would be actual and not abstract. There is no type of mystical love for God that's real that doesn't work itself out in how we love people. The whole book of 1 John says this, if you say that you love God, but you don't love the person that you can see, it's an imaginary love. It's make-believe. And so as Christ comes here and shares, hey, we love God with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, uh, with all of our strength, with all of our souls, what he's saying is, he's saying, it's meant to be fleshed out in the way that we live here in this world with actual people. And his point is that it's always been that way. From the creation of the world, God makes one man. There's no sin here in the world. He's doing all of the things that God tells him not to do. He's uh, uh, all the things that God tells him to do. He's not doing all of the things that God tells him not to do. And God looks down and before sin comes into the world, what God says is this. Adam, that's not good. 
And he's like, what's not good, God? I'm here. I'm with you. I receive your love in a very direct sense. And God says, that's not good. My design from the beginning, God's design from the beginning, is that our love for him would flesh itself out in the people that God had made. God wants our love and respect for him to extend to his creation, to all of those that possess his image. This is the way that God's rigged thing. In Genesis 9, do you know the reason why God is frustrated with murder? Genesis 9, 6. God says, don't kill them. Why? Because they're made in my image. To disrespect the people that God made is to disrespect God. To not love the people that God places in our lives is not to love God. That's why Peter, in 1 Peter, is going to reach out to husbands and say, if you're not living with your wife in an understanding way, don't bother praying because your prayers aren't going to work. Husbands, do you view your life like this? Do you view your wife like this? That your closest neighbor, this is the person that God has commanded you to love and to care for and to cherish. God meant for this love to be actually fleshed out to extend to his family. And so I want you to know this. If you find yourself distant from God, the worst thing that you can do is isolate yourself from God's people. Because all that you're going to do is mute the expression of God's love that he wants to give. It's so funny. I've, I've preached this for years about how we're to love and to care, and that's how we feel God's love. Um, and it's been in the past 11 months that I feel like I've really felt it and understood it. And just as your pastor, for those of y'all that are a part of this church, I just want to take this time out and tell you thank you. 11 months ago tomorrow, I got a call that my 32-year-old brother died. And for the past 11 months, life has just been crazy. My wife can attest to it. We've been married 10 years, or eight and a half years. It feels like 10 years, sweetheart. <laughs> In a good way. Um, we've been married for all that time. She could probably count um, on two hands the amount of times I came home and I had a bad day. I was just an optimistic, joyful person that never had a bad day. And in the past 11 months, she could probably count on two hands the days that I've come home and had a good day. I've seen a counselor for depression for the, the, the past few months. And life has just been hard. It's been hard to focus, hard to think, hard to work, hard to relate, hard to pastor. It's been hard to be a good husband to my wife. And what I've seen and what I've felt is this church, y'all tangibly care for us in a way that I am extremely grateful to God. Erica Brown, she's not in here, but the way that she's cared for my wife in a time where things have just been hard for me has been great. Caress, who lived with us all of last year, the way that she cared for us. I mean, Tripp and Jess, Mo. Richard, the way that he was, has, has just been with my family and by our side. And on and on and on, I could literally go down this room and spend the rest of the time just sharing how y'all praying for us and caring for us and bringing in us meals and asking questions like, how are you doing? And being a pastor, you don't get that question a whole lot. And now to be bombarded with it constantly has been one of the most amazing expressions of God's love. And this, like, this is why this is written here. 
And I just want you to know as a church that I've been extremely grateful for you all. And I want to challenge you to make that somebody else's story. Don't be so content with being here in a church week in and week out, seeing folks come and go, and never checking up on them. The reason why we come here and we only meet one time on Sunday is so that you would get a sense of who's here and who's not. That you would know that Wes and Allie always sit in that same spot right there. So if weeks go by and you don't see them, that you would love them and you would check in. And it may just be that they were busy or it may be that what takes place is they may do what we all do at times when we feel like life is hard or distant from God. The very first things that we want to do is isolate ourselves from God's people. And when you do that, you isolate yourself from the most tangible expression of, of God's love. Don't run away. Stay close. Don't let people run away. Bring them back. God wants this love to be actual. And he wants it to be automatic, instinctive. He ends off and he says this, lest anybody should think that, well, I do want to love them uh, with all of my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, with all, all, uh, all my strength, but I don't know what to do. And so what he says, here's what you do. Love them in the same way that you would love yourself. This is not an admonition towards self-love. Right? Well, if you're really going to love folks, then you've got to know what it means to love yourself. That's not what he's saying here at all. What he's saying is you all already know how to love yourselves. And you do a good job of it. From the time that you get up to the time that you go to bed, you're instinctive, you're proactive, you're thoughtful. Every time you're in the car with a group of folks and you change the station because you don't want to hear that song, that's you expressing that you love yourself. And you do it so instinctively. And so what Christ is saying is, if you really want to know the extent or how far this goes, as proactive, intentional, and thoughtful, and instinctive as you are with the way that you love yourself, do the same thing for your neighbor. For the Christian, love isn't optional. It's all that there is. Christ says that there's no greater commandment than these because there's no other genre of commandment. All commandments have to do with this. You look at the Ten Commandments and what you see is the first four at, are aimed at the way that you love God. Have no other God, make no graven images, don't take his name in vain, and rest to keep this day hope. And then the last six have to deal with the way that you and I treat one another. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't covet. What Christ does here is he sums up this whole law and he gives us a grid. If you want to make sense of the Bible, make sense of it through this grid of a love for God and love for others. God values relationships over religious rules. He wants us to have this selfless love. Because what we see is self-love, this love that we have for self, it's the most natural thing for all of us, but it's the most destructive thing that could take place here in this world. If our world was gripped or filled with people who solely loved themselves and only loved themselves, the present generation would be the last one. The whole earth would, would be gone in one gen an, an generation. Old wouldn't be cared for. The young would die off. And those that have strength would fight for power until we killed ourselves. A selfless love is the most unnatural thing that can take place but it's the most productive. If that really took place, if everybody really loved their neighbor as themselves, every problem that we see that we're frustrated with would immediately vanish. 
It's simple to explain. It's supernatural to apply. And so Christ says this is all of God's law. And then what takes place here is something that's very, very funny. Verse 32. And the scribe said to him, you're right. I agree with you. Jesus, you're right. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. Jesus, I want to show you how right you are that I'm going to put this in my own words. You're right. We agree. There's no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. We started this thing off saying, hey, there's so many people in this world that are wrong about God. It seems like we just need to be right about God, that that'll help and solve things. And what you have here is a guy that was right about God. And what Christ says is this, you're not far from the kingdom. What he doesn't say is that you're in. You're not far, but you're not in. And what he helps us to to see is this. Being right about God is not the same thing as being right with God. Being right uh, about him is not the same thing as being right with him. That's why I said at the front end, sometimes preach can be so dangerous because we all can sit here and laugh and affirm and say amen and say, yes, you're right, I agree. But it doesn't mean that we're right with God. Agreement is not the finish line. It's just the first step. Right answers aren't the solution. And I really want you all to hear this. I don't want anybody to miss this at all. Being almost saved is being actually lost. To be almost saved is to be actually lost. Almost doesn't count, as Brandy would say. Lots of great theology in 90s R&B. Almost doesn't count. To almost swim is to actually drown. To almost, uh, uh, and I would know because I'm not a, I'm an almost swimmer. To Almost get away with a crime is actually to be in jail. To almost be saved, to be near to the kingdom and not to get in, is to actually be on your way to hell. To almost make it to the bomb shelter is to actually and actively be in present danger. There's a story of a guy named uh, Matt, Matt, uh, Emmons. Um, he was a rifleman in the uh, Olympics a few years back, and he was so good that folks thought he was a shoe-in to win. On the very last round, what took place was all he had to do was hit the target anywhere on it, and he won. So, I mean, folks were ready to give him the gold medal. He sits, he looks, he aims. Shoots it, bullseye. Looks up at the scoreboard, zero points. So he looks at the judge and says, I hit the bullseye. And the judge says, that would have been great, but you shot at the wrong target. He was this close. But his name is not in the history books. What a travesty it would be if in 60 years there's some of us that find ourselves in church every week hearing the gospel preach what Christ did for us. 
and find ourselves in hell with a bunch of people that were almost saved but were actually lost. This is what Jesus is prescribing right here and why he says, listen, scribe, expert in the law, you did a good job of knowing all uh, uh, about God and all of the right things, but that doesn't get you into the kingdom. You're still missing it. And here's the beauty of what Christ does. Jesus doesn't tell us where we are to discourage us. So if you are sitting here right now and you feel like, well, I'm I'm not sure, am I in or am I out? I feel like I'm close and I'm nervous. Jesus tells us where we are in order to direct us towards the next step. And in the last week of his life, as we've talked through in the Gospel of Mark, what's going to take place is Jesus was a man that actually kept all of God's law. Every ounce of it. He was being brutally murdered as an innocent man. And God allowed it to take place. And his love for God never waned. He gave God all of his strength. His dying breath on the cross. As he's dying, being zapped of his strength. He uses the little strength that he has left to pray for the souls of all those that are hurling insults at him. Father, forgive them. You talk about treating your neighbor as yourself. Jesus lived this perfect life and he earned God's love and forgiveness and compassion. And rather than hoard it and keep it for himself, he actively went to the cross to die for all of us that have seen God and have chosen to run after other things. And he exchanged his life for ours. He gave it all up so that you and I, who may have all the right answers about what to do but find ourselves inadequate to do it all, that we would be able to rejoice and boast in the fact that though we don't have all the right actions and God requires all the right actions, we do have the right relationship. Somebody that has performed perfectly and has exchanged his life with ours. And this is the basis, this is the heart of Christianity. This is the heart of what it takes to keep God's law. So now what takes place is those of us that have actually put our trust in Christ and follow after Him, our life is governed completely by trying to make Him known and trying to invite people to partake in this relationship with Him. And the love that He's called us to show is not just towards those that we already like, but it's to be given especially to those that we don't like. Especially to those that frustrate us. Especially to those that we're not fond of. Especially to our spouses and our kids. Especially to those that are a part of our church. So every opportunity we have to interact with anybody is completely governed by this love that we have for God that's expressed in the love that we have towards folks out there. To be a Christ follower is to be someone whose entire life is governed by love for the people that God made. And that's our goal. That's our task. Every circumstance and scenario that you find yourself in in life is the best scenario to fulfill God's law. There's not one place that you can find yourself where you don't have a prime opportunity to do for someone what God in Christ has done for us. 
And we pray that as we do that as a church, that a world that's so desperate to know about God and know about His love wouldn't just hear, but they would see it tangibly put on display. And for those of y'all that are a part of this church, I do want you to know you have a responsibility for everybody else that's a part of this church. You may not be able to reach and to touch them all, but you can reach up and reach out to a God who can touch them all. And so as we constantly talk about things like praying for one another, don't let that be an optional thing. Let that be one of the most tangible expressions that you do for those that are, are, uh, are a part of the life of this church. And so as we close and thank God for what he did and get a chance to stay around, let's talk and find out how we can spur one another to love God more and to love one another as a result of God's love towards us. Let's pray. Father God, we're grateful that we can call you Father and that you've brought us into family. Help us to embrace the responsibility that we have towards the family that you've provided for us in the here and now. If there are those in here that don't know you or don't know what you want, I pray they would be reminded, Father, that you want perfection. And it's something that we can't give, but Jesus has already given it. Lord, I pray that those that are struggling to be right with you would embrace the relationship with Jesus that's freely offered to all. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.